Chapter Seven of the Tavern Night. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Deborah Knight. The Tavern Night by Raphael Sabatini. Chapter Seven: The Tavern Night's Story. Sir Crispin walked from the window by which he had been standing to the rough bed and flung himself full length upon it. The only chair that dismal room contained was occupied by Kenneth. Galliard heaved a sigh of physical satisfaction. "'For George, I knew not I was so tired,' he murmured, and with that he lapsed for some moments into silence, his brows contracted in the frown of one who collects his thoughts. At length he began, speaking in calm, unemotional tones that held perchance deeper pathos than a more passionate utterance could have endowed them with. Long ago, twenty years ago, I was, as I have said, an honorable lad, to whom the world was a fair garden, a place of rosebuds fragrant with hope. Those, Kenneth, were my illusions. They are the illusions of youth. They are youth itself, for when our illusions are gone, we are no longer young, no matter what years we count. Keep your illusions, Kenneth, treasure them, hoard them jealously for as long as you may." "'I dare swear, sir,' answered the lad, with bitter humour, "'that such illusions as I have I shall treasure all my life. "'You forget, Sir Crispin.' "'Slife I had indeed forgotten. "'For the moment I had gone back twenty years, "'and to-morrow was none so near.' "'He laughed softly, as though his lapse of memory amused him. "'Then he resumed. "'I was the only son, Kenneth, of the noblest gentleman that ever lived.' the heir to an ancient honoured name and to a castle as proud as lands as fair and broad as any in england they lie who say that from the dawn we may foretell the day never was there a brighter dawn than that of my life never a day so wasted never an evening so dark but let that be our lands were touched upon the northern side by those of a house with which we had been at feud for two hundred years or more puritans they were stern and hardy in their ungodly righteousness they held us dissolute because we enjoyed the life that god had given us and there i am told the hatred first began when i was a lad of your years kenneth the hall ours was the castle there's the hall was occupied by two young sparks who made little shift to keep up the pious reputation of their house they dwelt there with their mother a woman too weak to check their ways and holding mayhap herself views not altogether puritanical they discarded the sober black their forebears had worn for generations and donned gay cavalier garments they let their love-locks grow set plumes in their casters and jewels in their ears they drank deep ruffled it with the boldest and decked their utterance with great oaths for to none doth blasphemy come more readily than to lips that in youth have been overmuch shaped in unwilling prayer me they avoided as they would a plague and when at times we met our salutations were grave as those of men on the point of crossing swords i despised them for their coarse ruffling apostasy more than ever my father had despised their father for a bigot 
and they guessing or knowing by instinct what was in my mind held me in deeper rancor even than their ancestors had done mine and more galling still and yet a sharper spur to their hatred did those whelps find in the realization that all the countryside held as it had held for ages us to be their betters a hard blow to their pride that was but their revenge was not long in coming it chanced they had a cousin a maid as sweet and fair and pure as they were hideous and foul we met in the mead she and i spring was the time god it seems but yesterday and each in our bearing towards the other forgot the traditions of the names we bore and as at first we had met by chance so did we meet later by contrivance not once or twice but many times god how sweet she was how sweet was all the world how sweet it was to live and to be young we loved how else could it have been what to us were traditions what to us the hatred that for centuries had held our families asunder in us it lay to set aside all that and so i sought my father he cursed me at first for an unnatural son who left unheeded the dictates of our blood but anon when on my knees i had urged my cause with all the eloquent fervor that is but of youth youth that loves my father cursed no more his thoughts went back maybe to the days of his own youth and he bade me rise and go a-wooing as i listed nay more than that he did the first of our name was he out of ten generations to set foot across the threshold of the hall he went on my behalf to sue for their cousin's hand then was their hour to them that had been taught the humiliating lesson that we were their betters one of us came suing they from whom the countryside looked for silence when one of us spoke had it in their hands at length to say us nay and they said it what answer my father made them kenneth i know not but very white was his face when i met him on the castle steps on his return in burning words he told me of the insult they had put upon him then silently he pointed to the toledo that two years before he had brought me out of spain and left me but i had understood softly i unsheathed that virgin blade and read the spanish inscription that through my tears of rage and shame seemed blurred a proud inscription was it instinct with the punctilio of proud spain draw me not without motive sheathe me not without honour motive there was and to spare honour i swore there would be and with that oath and that brave sword girt to me i set out to find my first combat sir crispin paused and a sigh escaped him followed by a laugh of bitterness i lost that sword years ago he said musingly the sword and i have been close friends in life but to my companion has been a blade of coarser make carrying no inscriptions to prick at a man's conscience and to make a craven of him he laughed again, and again he fell amusing, till Kenneth's voice aroused him. "'Your story, sir!' Twilight shadows were gathering in their garret, and as he turned his face toward the youth he was unable to make out his features, but his tone had been eager, and Crispin noted that he sat with head bent forward and that his eyes shone feverishly. "'It interests you, eh? 
Ah, well, hot-foot I went to the hall, and with burning words I called upon those dogs to render satisfaction for the dishonor they had put upon my house. Will you believe, Kenneth, that they denied me? They sheltered their craven lives behind a shield of mock valor. They would not fight a boy, they said, and bade me get my beard grown when haply they would give ear to my grievance. And so, a shame and rage a hundredfold more bitter than that which I had borne thither, did I carry thence. My father bade me treasure up the memory of it against the time when my riper years should compel them to attend me, and this, by my every hope of heaven, I swore to do. He bade me further, if us, for ever from my mind all thought or hope of union with their cousin, and though I made him no answer at the time, yet in my heart I promised to obey him in that too. But I was young, scarce twenty, a week without sight of my mistress, and I grew sick with despair. Then at length I came upon her, pale and tearful one evening, and in an agony of passion and hopelessness I flung myself at her feet, and implored her to keep true to me and wait, and she, poor maid, to her undoing, swore that she would. You are yourself a lover, Kenneth, and you may guess something of the impatience that anon beset me. How could I wait? I asked her this. Some fifty miles from the castle there was a little farm in the very heart of the country, which had been left me by a sister of my mother's. Thither I now implored her to repair with me. I would find a priest to wed us, and there we should live a while in happiness, in solitude, and in love. An alluring picture did I draw with all a lover's cunning, and to the charms of it she fell a victim. We fled three days later." We were wed in the village that pays allegiance to the castle, and therefore we travelled swiftly and undisturbed to that little homestead. There in solitude, with but two servants, a man and a maid whom I could trust, we lived and loved, and for a season, brief as all happiness is doomed to be, we were happy. Her cousins had no knowledge of that farm of mine, and though they searched the country for many a mile around, they searched in vain. My father knew— as I learned afterwards. But deeming that what was done might not be undone, he held his peace. And the following spring a babe was born to us, and Darpless made heaven of that cottage. T'was a month or so after the birth of our child that the blow descended. I was away, enjoying alone the pleasures of the chase. My man was gone a journey to the nearest town, whence he would not return until the morrow. Oft have I cursed the folly that led me to take my gun and go forth into the woods, leaving no protection for my wife but one weak woman. I returned earlier than I had thought to do, led mayhap by some angel that sought to have me back in time. But I came too late. At my gate I found two freshly ridden horses tethered, and it was with a dull foreboding in my heart that I sprang through the open door within oh god the anguish of it stretched on the floor i beheld my love a gaping sword wound in her side and the ground all bloody about her for a moment i stood dumb in the spell of that horror then a movement beyond against the wall aroused me and i beheld her murderers cowering there one with a naked sword in his hand in that fell hour kenneth my whole nature changed and one who had ever been gentle was transformed into the violent, passionate man that you have known.
As my eye encountered then her cousin's, my blood seemed on the instant curdled in my veins. My teeth were set hard. My nerves and sinews knotted. My hands instinctively shifted to the barrel of my fowling piece and clutched it with the fierceness that was in me, the fierceness of the beast about to spring upon those that have brought it to bay. For a moment I stood swaying there, my eyes upon them, and holding their craven glances fascinated. Then with a roar I leapt forward. The stalk of my fowling piece swung high above my head. And as God lives, Kenneth, I had sent them straight to hell, ere they could have raised a hand or made a cry to stay me. But as I sprang, my foot slipped in the blood of my beloved, and in my fall I came close to her where she lay. The fowling piece had escaped my grasp and crashed against the wall. I scarce knew what I did, but as I lay beside her it came to me that I did not wish to rise again, that already I had lived over long. It came to me that, seeing me fallen, haply those cowards would seize the chance to make an end of me as I lay. I wished it so in that moment's frenzy, for I made no attempt to rise or to defend myself. Instead, I set my arms about my poor murdered love, and against her cold cheek I set my face that was well nigh as cold. And thus I lay, nor did they keep me long. A sword was passed through me from back to breast, whilst he who did it cursed me with a foul oath. The room grew dim, methought it swayed, and that the walls were tottering. There was a buzz of sound in my ears, then a piercing cry in a baby voice. At the sound of it I vaguely wished for the strength to rise. As in the distance I heard one of those butchers cry, "'Haste, man! Slit me that squalling bastard's throat!' And then I must have swooned. Kenneth shuddered. "'My God, how horrible!' he cried. "'But you were avenged, Sir Crispin,' he added eagerly. "'You were avenged?' "'When I regained consciousness,' Crispin continued, as if he had not heard Kenneth's exclamation, "'the cottage was in flames, set aside by them to burn the evidence of their foul deed. "'What I did I know not. I have tried to urge my memory along from the point of my awakening, "'but in vain. By what miracle I crawled forth I cannot tell.' but in the morning I was found by my man lying prone in the garden, half a dozen paces from the blackened ruins of the cottage, as near death as man may go and live. God willed that I should not die, but it was close upon a year before I was restored to any semblance of my former self, and then I was so changed that I was hardly to be recognized as that same joyous, vigorous lad who had set out a fowling piece on shoulder one fine morning a year agone. There was gray in my hair, as much as there is now, though I was but twenty-one. My face was seared and marked as that of a man who had lived twice my years. It was to my faithful servant that I owed my life, though I ask myself to-night whether I have cause for gratitude toward him on that score. So soon as I had regained sufficient strength, I went secretly home, wishing that men might continue to believe me dead. My father I found much aged by grief, but he was kind and tender with me beyond all words. From him I had it that our enemies were gone to France. It would seem that they had thought it better to remain absent for a while. He had learned that they were in Paris, and hither I determined forthwith to follow them. 
Vainly did my father remonstrate with me, vainly did he urge me rather to bear my story to the king at Whitehall and seek for justice. I had been well advised had I obeyed this counsel, but I burned to take my vengeance with my own hands, and with this purpose I repaired to France. Two nights after my arrival in Paris, it was my ill fortune to be embroiled in a rough and tumble in the streets, and by an ill chance I killed a man. The first was he of several that I have sent whither I am going to-morrow. The affair was like to have cost me my life, but by another of those miracles which have prolonged it, I was sent instead to the galleys on the Mediterranean. It was only wanting that, after all that already I had endured, I should become a galley-slave." For twelve long years I toiled at an oar and waited. If I lived, I would return to England, and if I returned, woe unto those that had wrecked my life, my body, and my soul. I did live, and I did return. The civil war had broken out, and I came to throw my sword into the balance on the king's side. I came, too, to be avenged, but that would wait." Meanwhile the score had grown heavier. I went home to find the castle in a usurping hands in the hands of my enemies. My father was dead. He died a few months after I had gone to France, and those murderers had advanced a claim that through my marriage with their cousin, since dead, and through my own death, there being no next of kin, they were the heirs at law. The Parliament allowed their claim, and they were installed. But when I came they were away, following the fortunes of the Parliament that had served them so well, and I determined to let my vengeance wait until the war were ended and the Parliament destroyed. In a hundred engagements did I distinguish myself by my recklessness, even as at other seasons I distinguished myself by my debaucheries. Ah, Kenneth, you have been hard upon me for my vices, for my abuses of the cup and all the rest. But can you be so hard upon me still, knowing what I had suffered, and what a weight of misery I bore with me, I, whose life was wrecked beyond salvation, who only lived that I might slit the throats of those who had so irreparably wronged me? Think you still that it is so vicious a thing, so unpardonable an offense, to seek the blessed nymph of the wine-cup, the heavenly forgetfulness that its abuses brought me? is it strange that i had become known as the wildest antivy boy that rode with the king what else had i in all truth your trials were sore said the lad in a voice that contained a note of sympathy and yet there was a certain restraint that caught the tavern knight's ear he turned his head and bent his eyes in the lad's direction but it was quite dark by now and he failed to make out his companion's face my tale is told kenneth the rest you can guess. The king did not prevail, and I was forced to fly from England with those others who escaped from the butchers that had made a martyr of Charles. I took service in France under the great Conde, and I saw some mighty battles. At length came the Council of Breda and the invitation to Charles the Second to receive the crown of Scotland. I set out again to follow his fortunes as I had followed his father's, realizing that by doing so I followed my own, and that did he prevail I should have the redress and vengeance so long awaited. To-day has dashed my last hope. To-morrow at this hour it will not signify, and yet much would I give to have my fingers on the throats of those two hounds before the hangman's close around my own. 
There was a spell of silence as the two men sat, both breathing heavily in the gloom that enveloped them. At length, "'You have heard my story, Kenneth,' said Crispin. "'I have heard, Sir Crispin, and God knows I pity you.' That was all, and Galliard felt that it was not enough. He had lacerated his soul with those grim memories to earn a yet kinder word. He had looked even to hear the lad suing for pardon for the harsh opinions wherein he had held him. Strange was this yearning of his for the boy's sympathy. He, who for twenty years had gone unloving and unloved, sought now in his extremity affection from a fellow man. And so, in the gloom, he waited for a kinder word that came not. Then, so urgent was his need, he set himself to beg it. "'Can you not understand now, Kenneth, how I came to fall so low? Can you not understand this dissoluteness of mine, which led them to dub me the Tavern Knight, after the king conferred upon me the honour of knighthood for that stand of mine in Fifeshire? You must understand, Kenneth,' he insisted almost piteously, "'and knowing all, you must judge me more mercifully than hitherto.' "'It is not mine to judge, Sir Crispin. I pity you with all my heart, the lad replied, not ungently. Still the knight was dissatisfied. "'Yours it is to judge as every man may judge his fellow man. You mean it is not yours to sentence. But if yours it were, Kenneth, what then?' The lad paused a moment ere he answered. His bigoted Presbyterian training was strong within him, and although, as he said, he pitied Galliard, yet to him whose mind was stuffed with life's precepts, and who knew not of the trials it brings to some, and the temptations to which they were not human did they not succumb, it seemed that vice was not to be excused by misfortune. Out of mercy, then, he paused, and for a moment he had it even in his mind to cheer his fellow-captive with a lie. Then, remembering that he was to die upon the morrow, and that at such a time it was not well to risk the perdition of his soul by an untruth, however merciful, he answered slowly, "'Were I to judge you, since you ask me, sir, I should be merciful because of your misfortunes. And yet, Sir Crispin, your profligacy and the evil you have wrought in life must weigh heavily against you.' Had this immaculate bigot, this churlish milksop, been as candid with himself as he was with Crispin, he must have recognized that it was mainly Crispin's offenses toward himself that his mind now dwelt on in deeper rancor than became one so well acquainted with the Lord's Prayer. "'You had not cause enough,' he said impressively, "'to defile your soul and risk its eternal damnation because the evils of others had wrecked your life.' Crispin drew breath with the sharp hiss of one in pain, and for a moment after all was still. Then a bitter laugh broke from him. "'Bravely answered, reverend sir,' he cried with biting scorn. "'I marvel only that you left your pulpit to gird on a sword, that you doffed your cassock to don a cuirass. Here is a text for you who deal in texts, my brave Jack Presbyter. Judge you your neighbor as you would yourself be judged. Be merciful as you would hope for mercy. Chew you the cud of that until the hangman's coming in the morning. Good night to you. And throwing himself back upon the bed, Crispin sought comfort in sleep. His limbs were heavy and his heart was sick. "'You misapprehend me, Sir Crispin,' 
cried the lad, stung almost to shame by Galliard's reproach, and also mayhap into some fear that hereafter he should find little mercy for his own lack of it towards a poor fellow sinner. I spoke not as I would judge, but as the church teaches. If the church teaches no better, I rejoice that I was no churchman, grunted Crispin. For myself, the lad pursued, heeding not the irreverent interruption, as I have said, I pity you with all my heart. More than that, so deeply do I feel, so great a loathing and indignation has your story sown in my heart, that were our liberty now restored us, I would willingly join hands with you in wreaking vengeance on those evildoers. Sir Crispin laughed. He judged the tone rather than the words, and it rang hollow. "'Where are your wits, O oh casuist?' he cried mockingly. "'Where are your doctrines? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Pah!' And with that final ejaculation, pregnant with contempt and bitterness, he composed himself to sleep. He was accursed, he told himself. He must die alone as he had lived. End of chapter 7 Recording by Deborah Knight State of Illinois United States of America.